Vanessa Diaz has written a powerful book about manufacturing celebrity in Hollywood. But how about the celebrity system in academia? About this and other fascinating topics is this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Vanessa Díaz. Vanessa is assistant professor in the Department of Chicana, Chicano and Latina Latino Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Before then, she was an assistant professor of Latina Latino Communications in the Department of Communications at Cal State Fullerton. She uh, got her BA at NYU in Latin American Studies and Politics with a minor in journalism and her MA and PhD in anthropology at the University of Michigan and Arbor. She has held numerous very prestigious fellowships at Dartmouth College, at the Smithsonian, uh, at UCLA. She uh, is the author of the recently published uh, spectacular book, Manufacturing Celebrity, Latino Paparazzi and Women Reporters in Hollywood that Duke University Press published last summer. She's working on her second book, El Militante, Solidarity and Activism in Pan-Latino Latinx Identity. Uh, she's also a documentary filmmaker uh, with two titles uh, under her credit and one in production and has written a number of papers, including the most downloaded paper in American Anthropologies for 2018-2019. Vanessa, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? You know, how was the start of your journey that led you to become a professor? Well, how long do we have here? <laughs> as long as you want. Um, so I would say that it really started from a very young age because um, some of my earliest memories of uh, my childhood were that I grew up um, for several years living at UC Riverside's um, married or family student housing because um, my parents were both in graduate programs at different points. Um, and my mom um, was the one who stuck it out with the PhD program as long as possible. She ended up uh, stopping uh, when she was ABD. Um, because uh, my father actually 
um, was killed while I was when I was a kid and my mom was trying to raise us and she was teaching full time and she was um, in grad school. Um, but I saw her fighting so hard and her research was actually looking at uh, comparatively at Cuba and um, Puerto Rico and their different paths of uh, independence and colonialism, um, you know, in the, in the case of, of Puerto Rico. And so it, you know, I grew up with just if you if you've been in graduate school, which I know you have, you know how our bookshelves are covered and there's stacks of books everywhere. And it's just like all you feel and absorb are our books and theories. And so I remember as a kid, I didn't know what it meant, but like I knew the word pedagogy. I knew the term critical pedagogy. I knew the term Marxism. I knew these terms and I didn't know what they meant, but I was just surrounded by knowledge and stacks of books. And it just, I, it evoked such passion in my parents that I, I really absorbed it. And I kind of thought I'll always go to, like, I kind of thought I'll go to graduate school. And then even though I had been pursuing a journalism career, um, I was kind of always thinking about the transition. After undergrad, um, when I came back to LA, um, I was doing full-time freelancing for People Magazine, but I also got a job at UCLA um, doing media relations work. And my media relations work was for their ethnic studies center. I would do the promotion for the different books and studies and, and events for all these different ethnic study centers there. And so I kind of always had this like, way that I was thinking about linking my different interests. And after doing that for a couple of years and freelancing full-time, I thought, I think I'm ready to try out graduate school. And thanks to some amazing friends who, you know, went straight through, um, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, who was one of my best friends in undergrad and her book, America on Fire just came out this past week. Um, but she was my first friend to go straight from undergrad to grad school. And so she really kind of held my hand through the application process and um, all the different application processes that followed for fellowships and postdocs and grants. And so, you know, it was something that I think I always knew I was going to do, but it definitely wasn't linear. It took all of these different experiences to help me figure out exactly where to go. Very interesting. Um, I have a follow-up question, but before that, I'm, I'm sorry about your father's uh, you. passing. Um, why anthropology? <laughs> that's, that's another great question. You know, I didn't even know what anthropology was. I think I took class from a couple of anthropologists throughout my entire time at NYU, but I will say that the first was Arlene Davila, who was the professor in my very first class of my very first day as a first year student at NYU. I walked into her contemporary Latino cultures class and it was like a light bulb went off and I had a, you know, a Shiro in front of me and she was Puerto Rican and she was brilliant and she had, you know, I, I knew her research interest was similar. And so from that day, you know, I, I was so motivated um, and saw her as a model. And then I ended up doing as an undergraduate for my Latin American studies 
um, and my politics um, majors, I did the, the work on Cuban hip hop and I didn't know, I didn't really didn't know what ethnography was, but it was what I found out from my committee, including Arlene and, and Ada Ferrer, that 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 was ethnography like the project that i was doing about cuban hip-hop they said well this is ethnography that's what you're doing so when i approached very various folks on the committee they said well if you're going to apply to grad school you might want to consider anthropology since it seems like that's the methodology you're kind of already engaging so i think that's where you know there's a lot of issues with anthropology i'm very critical of the discipline um it is a colonial discipline as are all disciplines but there's a with the exception of ethnic studies, I guess, even if it's confined within a colonial, uh, colonized type setting at these institutions. Um, anthropology, you know, the histories of anthropology often claim Spanish colonizers as the first ethnologists and even ethnographers. So it is this very, very inherently colonial discipline with the white supremacy as the root and looking at the other as the non-white other, all of these different factors that make anthropology an incredibly problematic discipline. But I think that if you look at the practices of anthropology that a lot of like why ethnography felt natural to me was because it was storytelling, it was sharing, it was exchange, it was all of these different kinds of practices that I think are actually you know, things from our communities, the way that we engage with our different communities and families. And so because that methodology came natural to me and because I had a few really incredible models um, of what anthropology could look like and then was, you know, incredibly fortunate that even when I applied to grad school, I did apply for anthropology and some American studies programs, but Ruth Behar at University of Michigan um, you know, saw my application and I met with her before accepting and she was another amazing model of kind of what anthropology could be, I think. And so that's why I ended up going in that direction. Okay, very interesting. And how was grad school? Hmm. Traumatizing in a word. Of course, there were amazing experiences. You know, there were classrooms that felt like different spaces when I was in Ruth's classes, I always felt like an ease and a, this is why I'm here because it was focused on the writing. It was focused on, you know, not thinking about theory in such a male dominant white centered kind of thinking about theory, like really understanding that theory can be so many different things and reading a lot of women of color work and like these different times where I felt that there was the potential for grad school to empower. But I think, you know, the same way that we talk about collective critique of institutions, universities are very difficult institutional spaces. Um, very, you know, I felt a lot of the imposter syndrome that people felt. I, as a person, am really outgoing and always felt kind of fearless. And grad school like brought out the fear in me. So on the one hand, it was such a luxury to be able to take this time to study and think like, what are the questions I want to ask and what do I want to read and who do I want to be as a scholar? I'm also a performer and an artist and a filmmaker and a journalist. And I felt like a lot of those different components of my identity kind of got stripped away. So I'm in the process of like rebuilding those parts of my identity. 
good for you first. And then why? Why do you think universities in particular, probably elite universities like Michigan, um, which is a fabulous institution in terms of quality. So why, why do you think graduate school ends up becoming like that? That's a great question. I think, I mean, to me, so much of my in interest is in questions of institutions and power and precarity. And I think in the context of the university setting that graduate students are often in precarious positions. Graduate students of color are in more precarious positions. Women graduate students are in more precarious positions. You know, in my program, when I enrolled, um, there hadn't been a, a black student admitted to my program in many years. So yeah, and there was, you know, while I was there, really terrible racial aggressions that I saw, gender aggressions that I saw. And I think, you know, that's that's really the core issue is that we're we're all operating in this inherently sexist, racist society. And then we're functioning within these institutions that have thrived on that. I mean, while I was there. There were several women of color who got denied tenure. There were many ongoing fights around the Native American remains that the university held in their archaeology museum. So my department was implicated in particular ways that they refused to repatriate. So when you have this kind of, you know, settler colonialism practice happening at the institutions that you're essentially working for, um, when the systems of, of large universities require that um, graduate students get paid minimal amounts to do a lot of the educational labor, um, and, and you're functioning within these disciplines that also are racist, sexist, and have colonial sort of foundations, I think it's just, it, it's, it almost becomes par for the course. I think there is hope to change that. And I think that as we've seen over the last several years with the calling out of different levels of institutional practices around racism, sexism, abuse of power. I mean, I talk about in my work, these issues in Hollywood, it's not just Me Too and it's not just Oscar So White, but we've seen in education over the last year, issues like the different folks who have been fraudulent about their uh, racial and ethnic identity you know, claiming that they're Black Latinx folks or claiming that whatever they are, but they're not that. And so that is because of white supremacy that specifically white people are able to do that and get away with that when those of us who are actually from, um, you know, minoritized backgrounds, we could never fake that. We've had to fight just to get access to those spaces. And then also abuses of power. I saw, you know, Me Too involves a lot of people in academia. And I it happened to people who were in my program where you have professors abusing that power over students. So I think it's just these these hierarchical systems that breed the 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 ways in which students and, and in my case graduate students feel disempowered. Um, but I think there's the potential for change as we call these things out as we um, as we change the work, anthropology as a whole field is changing. And there's so many people to thank for that. But, you know, people like Amy Cox, who's done transformational work in the discipline, um, centering black women in girlhood. There's 
so much happening that is so good too. So let's continue on that. So as a scholar of institutions and power, what, what could be done to rebuild these institutions and to change the balance of power more you know, concretely? What, what, would you, what, what do you think could be done um, so that the experience that you had would not be repeated, say, five or 10 years from now by somebody entering a program at the stage you entered? So I actually, this is where I think that the questions of my research and my book around celebrity actually come into play. Because one of the things that I've been thinking about since, since I started thinking about my dissertation research is the celebrity of academia, right? So I talk about celebrity empathy in my book and the way that we worship celebrities and how that contributes to making these precarious laborers who are racialized and targeted and hated like the paparazzi or the reporters who are targeted and assaulted sexually and you know exploited in these different ways. It exists because of the power dynamics that emerge from celebrity and the worship of celebrity. And we very much have a celebrity system within academia where certain scholars are worshiped for whatever reason. Most of those scholars are white men, though it exists in ethnic studies and among folks of color for sure. There is drastic abuse of power in the sort of gatekeeping politics because I think a lot of the times in, in um, among scholars of color who have reached elite status that the attitude is not always one of there's room for us all at the table. It's more of a there's room for me at the table. And so I think it creates these, these celebrity type dynamics where you have to worship. Um, you have to worship to get in, you have to worship to thrive. Um, and I've experienced that for certain where I feel like I can, you can't say what you think. You have to say what you think you're supposed to say to please the celebrity academics. Um, so I think that in terms of how that could change, um, I do think that the calling out of these power dynamics, it's like you can't address a problem until you actually name the problem, right? Just like in therapy, <laughs> which I've had a lot of since graduate school. Um, but also the championing of different ways of thinking, right? Like in grad school, regardless of your program, if you're in the social sciences, you're going to read Foucault, you're going to read Weber, you're going to read Marx, you're going to read certain canonical works. Why are they canonical? Why isn't Franz Fanon always going to be read? Why isn't, I mean, in every discipline, that everyone would know that work the way they would know Weber or something, right? I think it's changing the canon and saying as educators, we're not gonna teach that. I don't think that everyone needs to know um, all the same dozen or two dozen or even three dozen white male scholars, even if they might have some interesting things to say, can we look <clears throat> to other people who have equally interesting and important things to say, or perhaps more so, and change that canon so that it empowers people 
in different ways to think differently. You know, how Ruth's idea of Ruth Bahar's ideas around theorizing and what is theory? And can we have more humanistic theorization that isn't so abstracted from the very people and content we're talking about? I think it's, it's part of this decolonizing of the mind um, that is in progress and just needs to continue to grow. And I think more of us that get into these different fields and have a different approach and want to change the way the canon is structured that we'll see ramifications of that over time okay do you think this is a particularly based on your experience um both you know intellectual and personal with colleagues in different institutions and at conferences etc do you think this is a pattern that is particularly prevalent in US institutions or also in other parts of the world? Oh, I definitely think it's in other parts of the world for sure. Because I think even one of the things that always bothered me about graduate school and the literature we read, and this is nothing against the French language, which I think is beautiful as is every single language ever in the history of the world. Um, but I always felt so confounded by the fact that in English language literature, that French words were always inserted and it was expected that we would know what those French sayings are as they were included in English language literature, but that was not the same for other languages. And so I was like, what if there was a Spanish word, it would be translated, but French words could be left as French phrases. So I think you see the way that it's this very particular kind of championing of white Western European practices. And that's not to say Spanish as a language isn't a white Western European language. It is, but it's been racialized, particularly in the US to be connected to Latin America and the Caribbean and not a uh, thought of as a Western European language. It's very much thought of uh, as, as a language of the Americas. So, um, so that in and of itself, and so many of the authors that we read are from uh, both French and, and uh, German male scholars. So I definitely don't think that it's exclusive to the US, but I think that US institutional elitism and the ways in which the US, most scholars don't interact with literature by uh, people in other countries, mm -hmm. except for the historical canons. So, so we're not necessarily in the US reading the work of our contemporaries in France or in Argentina or in, you know, um, Alemania, um, like what is it, Germany? <laughs> but um, we are reading that literature that was written hundreds of years ago. So it's so, it's so ridiculous. Um, so I think that that there's the particular ways in which it emerges in the US, but it's obviously linked to the ways in which there's been broader sort of white Western European male uh, literature that's been championed across the globe. Okay. How, how and when did you choose your dissertation topic, which eventually became your first book, right? How, how was that process for you? 
It was long and drawn out because when I applied to graduate school, I actually applied continuing to do research in Cuba. And my original project was wanting to look at um, changes in sort of Cuban food practices because of the special period and the ways in which um, changes in rations and the inavailability of food changed social gatherings and culinary practices. And so I spent my first summer after graduate school looking at archives of the ration lists that were published in the newspaper um, and interviewing people about how and what they ate during the special period, how they survived, and how it impacted their social life. And I, I'm very passionate about that project and I felt like it was the right direction for me because I, I'm very interested in food and food studies as well. But I spent half of my summer in Cuba and I spent the other half uh, back in California doing freelance work for People Magazine full-time again. And there were a few things. One was the kind of practicality of you know, working in Cuba, though I've done it for very extended periods of time, is very complicated institutionally in terms of the permissions. And there's just a lot of different layers um, that you have to go through that can that can be difficult. And communication, you know, with my family, um, lack of internet access and ability to call. And, you know, I was married already and not really wanting to have such irregular communication with my spouse. I felt like that was not gonna work for me. And I simultaneously felt like, wow, all of the things I'm viewing in celebrity journalism world were fascinating and worthy of a more close and critical examination than I think I had ever encountered. And so, you know, again, I started thinking about what is unique in this moment. The work I was doing in Cuba was more historical and I could do it later. Whereas what I was witnessing on the red carpet, what I was witnessing among paparazzi, that was happening now, right now. And I had access right now, access that I don't even have now. Like in this moment in 2021, I don't have the same access that I had in 2007, 8, 9, 10, et cetera. And so I decided that that was the way to go, that I needed to capture this moment right now um, and that I could return to the other projects later. But there came a time where I kept switching my projects and my advisor was like, Vanessa, you're gonna do all of these projects and I don't care which one you do, but please just stick to one. <laughs> so I did. How was that emotionally though? You had you had emotional investment in the Cuban project, right? I have I had investment. That's two of the projects that came up. I had many other ideas <laughs> that were all very <laughs> emotional for me. Um, but I think that I guess you know one of the I guess we could say positive things that came out of grad school was my understanding that I'm going to do a lot of research and I'm going to write more than one book and I'm going to publish more than papers on one topic. And so I think that's where my advisor's kind of urging to just pick one for now, it's just for now, 
kind of helped me to see that, you know, I, I could still have other things going on. And I have published on topics unrelated to my book since then. Um, so I think it was just about sort of accepting that this is just one of many projects that I'm going to be working on over the next several years. And I mean, I continued to do research in Cuba. I led a study abroad program there with my advisor. I continued working with the different artists that I wrote about, um, helping to bring them to the different universities I was at. So there's all these ways that we can remain engaged with our different interests, even if that's not the dissertation topic or the first, first book. And how was the transition I mean, you were already in the field, or not, or not officially as a field worker, right? Uh, how was the identity transition uh, for uh, your dissertation when you decided to, to do the study on celebrities and paparazzis, right? Yeah, you mean the transition of my position? Right, because you did not enter the novel, you didn't enter from scratch. You, yeah. It was the same you, but it was a different identity. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting question. I think, um, I think that it was actually, it felt natural because I think that my colleagues always knew that I kind of wanted to do something more with what we were learning as journalists. Um, they weren't surprised that I went to grad school, though some of them did say, why, you know, why are you, what do you, I don't understand. Why do you need to go to grad school? You can just be a journalist with us. Like I contemplated dropping out and they were like, okay, cool. So you'll just come back to working here with us, right? It'll be fine. And um, there was a lot of sort of not understanding why I was doing what I was doing, even though they knew that I wanted to like take this material and do something more. And I think once I got to the stage of the actually saying, well, this is what I'm going to do my research on, that there were a few people who were kind of dismissive about it and kind of like, okay, this is your little school project and whatever, like we're dealing with big things here as celebrity reporters. But most of the people were like, okay, this makes sense. Somebody needs to write about this. There's so, you're the perfect person to write about this because you're one of us. You know this stuff, you've seen this stuff, you've seen what we go through, you've gone through it yourself. And we need these stories told. And also, we want to talk to somebody about this who understands. And a lot of them said, oh, this started to feel like therapy for me because they knew that I was going to take the content and think about it and give them thoughtful responses and discuss it with them and ask them questions about it, but also then kind of like think about it away from our conversations. And, and so I think most of the people who I worked with who have read the book have found it not only therapeutic, but even kind of pointing out things about their own experiences that they hadn't thought about in that way before. And so I think that, that the transition, you know, ended up feeling like this was the right, this was what I was supposed to do. This was the right, um, this was the reason why I started this whole work in the first place. Like that, that was, that was the role I was supposed to fill, I think. All right. And when, when you were getting ready to finish, 
how was the job market experience? So, you know, what I will say is that it's I, the job market, obviously, like my second year of grad school was 2008. So that was, you know, the financial downturn. So things got really ugly. I defended in 2015, though, and things were looking a bit better. Um, I think, though, that what served me in the job market was that I have a multitude of professional experiences outside of academia. And I also do really interdisciplinary work. Mm -hmm. So whereas I had friends and colleagues who could only apply for two or three jobs because there were only two or three jobs in their fields, my fields are many. So I could apply for jobs in anthropology. I could apply for jobs in media studies and communication. I could apply for jobs in, in uh, Chicana, Chicanx, Latino, Latinx studies. I could apply for jobs. Um, I don't know if I already said anthropology. I could apply for jobs in sociology. I could apply for jobs in American studies. All these different fields that are my fields, gender studies, you know, they're all my fields. Um, and I was very intentional about writing work and participating in conferences that were not just anthropology, you know, going to LASA, presenting at LASA, presenting at comparative uh, literature conferences, like all these different spaces where I felt like my work contributed to. And so I had a broader market. Um, and that's also why I've been in so many different kinds of departments in my different positions. And interestingly, even though my PhD is in anthropology, I never had an appointment there. You know, at my UCLA um, Ford Foundation postdoc, my mentor, uh, Sherry Ortner was, oh, that, sorry, that was for, that was for a different fellowship. I can't even remember the different fellowships, but one of them, Sherry Ortner in anthropology was my mentor, but I wasn't actually in anthropology. So again, that's the one field where I think I am often situated more on the outskirts, despite having a PhD in anthropology from Michigan. <laughs> and how's the life of an interdisciplinary scholar? I mean, the challenges are different, right? And, and what, what have you learned about do's and don'ts if you want to really engage multiple disciplinary audiences? That's also a great question. I think for me is, you know, simultaneously engaging with the literature from across the disciplines that you want to be in conversation with and that you want to identify with, but also having a sense of where you most want to be sort of aligned. So for me, I definitely consider myself an interdisciplinary ethnographer, an anthropologist, gender studies and media studies scholar. But I would say that for me, that it's most critical that I position myself within the realm of ethnic studies and, and Latinx studies specifically, because I think everything that I'm looking at comes back to looking at these core questions about race and identity and so for me, wanting to make sure that I am, that I'm always going to be contributing to that field first and foremost is grounding. Um, 
particularly because, you know, part of the reason I don't think that my work is always taken as seriously in anthropology as other individuals is because of the way that I engage with race and because of my work in ethnic studies. I think anthropology overall has done a really terrible job at reckoning with the literature from ethnic studies and thinking anthropology, thinking of itself as sort of this like arbiter of racial studies because of the history of the discipline and the ways in which it has, you know, talked about race as a social construction for so long, but it often ignores the the foundational work on race and identity that ethnic studies has been doing since its inception. And so for me, that part of saying, okay, yes, I have these different intellectual identities, but where do I want to be positioned most clearly and Again, for me, thinking of thinking of my work is always reckoning first and foremost with what it means to be a critical ethnic studies scholar is is a priority. Very interesting. So then if I flip the question and I ask you from your different disciplinary forays outside of ethnic studies. How do you compare the different fields that you mentioned, anthropology, communication and media studies, sociology, American studies, addressing issues of race and ethnicity? Okay. You mentioned some on anthropology, but I mean, do you see differences, similarities, uh, patterns cutting across the different fields? What I see is that I think I mean, like a field like gender studies is always going to be looking at intersectionality, I think, differently than a field like anthropology. So when you go, go into a conversation in gender studies, I think you're automatically starting out with a different conversation, a different sensibility about race and gender and intersectionality. I think that when you walk into a conversation in anthropology, race is not necessarily going to be the first question. Whereas you cannot have work done in a critical ethnic studies field or an American studies field and not have race be centered clearly from the outset. So I think it's this extent to which there's an undeniability of the role of race in any field that centers ethnic studies or American studies and even if it might get addressed tangentially, um, a lot of anthropology work does not reckon with race and sometimes even with gender. And there was actually a study a few years ago of different terms that were most used in anthropological literature that had to do with identity, like basic forms of, of differentiation, race, gender, class, education. And race was the one that was used the least um, among these different sort of identifiers of forms of difference. And so I think that's really telling um, is kind of the ways in which that um, gets decentered in certain disciplines and, and centered first and foremost in others. And how about media studies in your forays in the literature? Or in, again, conferences, talks, etc. What has been your experience and what's your perception? So I would say with all disciplines, um, 
putting, not speaking to ethnic studies because I think they already do this. I think all of the sort of more, um, I, don't, I don't know any other word to use than traditional disciplines, <laughs> um, but I think all of those disciplines are making more of an effort to address race, to address these sort of questions. I mean, like there was a panel, for example, at, and then I'll get to the media study specifically, but there was a panel a few years ago at an American Anthropological Association conference that was about how anthropology has basically sidelined and ignored ethnic studies and why. And so I think we have the same thing in different fields like media studies, where I think we're seeing more and more good critical race work done in media studies as these different conversations around the ways in which race and other kinds of forms of intersectional difference have been ignored, or there's been such a focus on white media and analyzing white media and white media practices and the idea of the consumer as the you know, status quo, which is middle-class white, um, you know, the dominant consumer. Um, and so I think that there's a continual sort of reckoning with and understanding as we've seen the ways that media industries have shifted their focus. And there's been some really great work done on the ways that media has dealt with ideas of diversity and sort of how do we study that and understand that. So um, I think because media studies is supposed to reflect the changing media landscape, that it's almost been forced more to reckon with um, questions of identity in ways that other disciplines maybe don't have to as much, like a discipline like history maybe doesn't have to reckon in the same way that media studies has to reckon with the contemporary media landscape changing. Using this discussion about media studies as a segue into your own media practices, how was the transition from the dissertation to the book? So, the dissertation to book for me, um, I had the privilege of working with an advisor who wanted me to write the dissertation as close to the book as possible. Sort of not, you know, I had parts of the dissertation that automatically needed to come out, like my literature review or positioning it specifically in the field of anthropology in a way that I didn't feel that my book needed to do. Um, so there were these certain moments that I had to include in the dissertation, but that were pretty easy to extract. And then I also had the privilege of um, being in conversation with the editor who I ended up working with at Duke, um, Ken Whisaker, since I had been in the early stages of even conceptualizing the book. Because one of the great things about the Ford Foundation is that at the Ford conference, they have editors there from different publishers. So I was able to have conversations with various editors about the book when I was still a few years away from actually defending my dissertation. So I kind of had this time to be thinking in collaboration, in conversation with the people who would have the biggest impact on what the book would become. And so so in that sense, it was um, probably a little easier than some people's experience. On the other hand, 
so much had changed. Like, for example, Natasha didn't come out publicly with her story. Natasha Stoinoff, who was sexually assaulted by Donald Trump, who I write about in the book, she had not come out publicly with that story until the year of the election. So 2016, the year after I defended my dissertation. So in my dissertation, I wrote about her anonymously because we did the interview anonymously. But then when she came out with the story publicly and my interview recordings became part of her evidence and and it changed my relationship to the material and it changed the way she wanted me to address the material. It became public information so I could use her name and she wanted me to. All of these things created different shifts and also positioned things in a way that made it so I could discuss the cases of Chris Guerra, who was the paparazzo I write about in my book, who was killed on the job, and Natasha's experiences in these comparative ways that I didn't feel like I could do until the particular course of events happened. So the introduction then completely changed. Um, so I think it, on the one hand, there was things about the transition that were easier because of the way that I approached the dissertation from the beginning. On the other hand, I was really, really, really um, in touch with the particular changes that happened through the revision process that required quite a bit of overhauling. Um, and I think that I ended up happy that even though I had been under contract since the fall of 2015 and I didn't finish my revisions for a few years, even that was like not my plan, it all kind of happened for a reason because there was important changes that ended up happening because of the time I took. Great. Now, Vanessa, we have covered a broad range of topics of, you know, the, the academic experience from the beginning until, you know, getting a job and uh, from research to writing and um, from one discipline to many. Um, if you had magical powers that could be granted one wish about how you'd like the academy to change, what would you wish for? Oh, just one, huh? That's one. <laughs> um, I think just like everything else, um, for it to continue to be less racist, you know, for lots of different perspectives to be championed. Um, and I think that this just requires overall shifts and in institutional practices um, and, and the individuals. I don't think it's as much uh, about just the individuals who populate these institutions, but about the, the actual institutional practices themselves. And so, so that's where I would want to focus on. All right. Thank you very much for a really enlightening conversation. Thank you to um, our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of Café Latinx. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.